You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Here in the seventh inning, the Yankees are trailing 2-0. That is the key man. Hit high in the air to left field. Going to the corner, Yaspinski. It's over the wall. It's a home run for Bucky Dent. Yankees get the lead 3-2. Deep to left, Yastrzemski will not get it, it's a home run! A three-run home run for Bucky Dent, the Yankees now lead it by a score of three to two. Well, the last guy on the ball club, you'd expect to hit a home run, just hit one into the screen, Bucky Dent. Hi everyone, I'm Bucky Dent. Welcome to this week's episode of Deep to Left. And today we have a fascinating guest on, CeCe Sabathia, one of the all-time great pitchers, a truly tremendous competitor. And he's got a HBO special coming out actually tonight. It's called Under the Grapefruit Tree, the CeCe Sabathia story. And I'm just looking forward to really talking about it. Fascinating guy. And before we get there on the line, I uh, have the deputy editor, John Schwartz, my sidekick. So, John, I'm looking forward to talking to CC, and I'm sure you are too. Look, Bucky, first off, happy holidays to you. Secondly, I know CC fairly well. I know his family fairly well from years of covering him. There's no better person for fans of this podcast to get to hear right now because he is He's the best. He's one of a kind. And I can't wait for people to get to hear that. Well, we got to watch the HBO special and uh, the documentary. And I'm telling you what, I got tears in my eyes, my wife, and it is something that you got to see. And everybody's got to turn it on tonight and watch it. Absolutely. Why don't we get right to it? Let's get him on the line. Hey, CC, thanks for coming on the show today. I mean, it, uh, I'm telling you, I'm excited to talk to you about this uh, documentary you did. Thank you. Thank you. No problem. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on here. Let's jump right in there. Under the Grapefruit Tree. What a what a great name. And, uh, you know, HBO and MLB, you know, joined together to make this. How, lo- how long was it in the making? You know, when did you start thinking about possibly doing a, you know, a documentary like that? I really thought about it, I guess, when I knew that I was going to retire, which would have been um, at the be- at the end of 18. Um, I went to my wife and I just, you know, I was coming up. I felt like I would have was pretty close to 3,000 strikeouts. I think I was 14 away entering the season and I was a couple wins away from 250. So I thought it would be cool just to document it. You know, I didn't, I didn't necessarily want to do a documentary, but I just wanted to have some of those cool moments and like film some of those cool moments of us as a family traveling around and me coming up on some of these cool moments as a baseball player. So we started getting into the footage and started filming and started thinking like, this would be a cool story if we just told the whole thing. And, you know, HBO was 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 thrilled about that. And, you know, they were like, if you're open to talking about addiction, you know, we would love to talk about that. And MLB was awesome enough to give us, you know, a lot of footage that we needed, you know, from early in my career. So things just kind of really came together, you know, really at the beginning of uh, quarantine. You know, HBO bought all the footage and, you know, we shot a couple of uh, interviews and, and this is what, what came out of it, which is, uh, which is I'm really excited for people to see this because this is, you know, authentically me. Um, even down to the name, you know, under the grapefruit tree, because that's something that I did 
for hours as a kid, you know, picking grapefruits uh, off a tree or picking them up off the ground and throw them at a folding chair. So that's kind of like how I got my start as a pitcher. So, you know, everything about this doc is authentic. So I'm excited for it. Well, I, you, you know, I mean, you're such an inspiration and, and to be able to open up, you know, about all the things that you went through, you know, as, as a young player, you know, as, as a guy that made it to the major leagues. And, you know, what I think people forget sometimes is behind the scenes, all the troubles and all the things that we go through to, to become an athlete. But, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, growing up, I, I, you know, I, I, w- I was just fascinating, not only at the name, you know, but, you know, the things that you went through as a kid, I, I kind of mirror those, you know, I, I had some of those moments too, but um, you were so open about it and I think that was what was so mesmerizing to me and my wife when we were watching it oh thank you and and yeah I mean I think for me to be able to be so open it's a part of like therapy for me um you know especially being you know like a like African-American male we we very we tend not to really get into our feelings or you know talk about any of the the trauma or any things that we went through so to be able to open up and, and talk about you know all the things that I you know I've been through as a kid you know from my parents splitting up to, you know, my grandmother passing away, you know, the middle of my senior year to, you know, my father passing away. So, you know, it's been so many different things and, you know, so many different tough times, but so many different great times too. So, you know, you, you, you'll get to see in a sense of, of both of those things in the doc. CC, one of the things that everyone's always loved about you, and like, frankly, that reporters have certainly loved about you is, I mean, you were always an open book, man. And, and you were one of the least precious players that I've ever been around. Like you didn't BS anybody. You would, you would go around chatting with people on days you started and everything like that. So, you know, things like – I think people expected always that, you know, we knew more about you than maybe we actually did. And was that a little jarring for you almost because you felt like you had this relationship, you were so open with everybody, but when you actually let people in on the demons kind of that you were living with? Yeah, I mean, it, it was it – was, the reason why I went to rehab is because I wasn't able to live – like my my real self, because I would be walking around, like you said, not be in a great mood and all this different stuff. But then, at, you know, the night before, I had just drank everything in the mini bar. You know what I mean? And I'm sometimes I'm walking around and then, you know, there's certain people that I don't want to be able to smell the alcohol on my breath. You know what I'm saying? So I was always like tiptoeing around from what you guys seen, you know, from the flip side of that, of being in my room and, you know, having these really dark nights. So the, the reason why, I, like, I, I went to rehab and made it so public is so that I could just get all of that off my chest and not, you know, worry about if somebody saw me drinking this or, you know, how I acted the night before and things like that. So it, it like when I, when I came out of rehab in, in 2016 and, you know, being able to walk in the clubhouse, it was like a, like a real weight lifted off my chest where, you know, this is really me and, and, you know, I'm, I'm living in, in my truth and in my addiction and, and I need help. And, you know, I had to go get help and, and here I am, you know, trying to, trying to be a better person. We watched this uh, hour-long story of your life, and when you watch that, and when you're involved in the making of it, and for example, you see your wife Amber's tears as she's talking and all these things, is that freeing for you in a sense that you're putting it down in the open, or does it make you kind of like live through it again? Like, what is your emotion as you see her emotions and your kids' emotions and everything like that? Uh, yeah, I mean, for me and Amber, because you know we lived through it to kind of together. You know, our tears are kind of the same. We watch it together and she cries on, on my t- tough parts and I cry on her tough parts. But I think we both cry and, and you know, feel a certain way when it's the, the part about my dad. 
you know, certain scenes of my dad, hearing his voice, you know, different things that he missed out on, his relationship that he would have with Karsten. You know, I think, you know, everybody in my family, top to bottom, will, you know, get a sense and feel that because of how close me and him were. And, you know, that was another thing why I wanted to do this documentary too and, you know, really tell our story is because I think sometimes he gets a bad rap in my story where people like to paint my mom as a single mother and she did all these great things, which she did, she was awesome. But my dad was there for the first 13 years of my life, you know, and, and really was the one that that taught me how to play sports and was there with me every day. So for him to get kind of that bad rap in my story, I wanted to be able to to tell his side of it, you know, my version of his side of it and, you know, how close we were and how much it hurt me when he passed. Watching it, by the way, I, I noticed that I screwed that up. In one of my pieces that I wrote about you, I mentioned your dad who wasn't around enough. And I mean, you can discuss what around enough is, but Mm -hmm. it was jarring for me to watch that and to see how much a part of your life he was throughout, not just at the end when I knew you guys had really gotten very close again, but Mm -hmm. I felt very bad watching that, that I had possibly uh, given the wrong impression of where he stood in your life. It it was almost like it was two different relationships we had. You know, we had the the closest when we were, when I was really young, um, up until I was 12 or 13, then they split. And then I didn't see him until I was 18 again, um, until, I, you know, until, until I was 17. So about four, four, four years, you know, I saw him maybe a weekend or two in four years. So, you know, we, we weren't close. And that was the time when my mom had to step in. And that's the time when, you know, I'm going through high school. That's the toughest time. You know, scouts are coming, schools are calling. You know, it's all kind of stuff going on in my life. My grandfather passes away my freshman year. My, gran- my grandmother passed away my senior year. So... You know, that was a really tough time for him not to be there. Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was kind of both. It was it was a little bit of both. But your grandmother, your grandmother was a backbone, you know, of of you growing up, too, wasn't she? I mean, you, you, you spoke very, very highly of her. And, you know, I, got, I can remember my grandmother. My grandmother was the one that, you know, kind of put all the, you know, the yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yeah. yes, sir, all that kind of stuff into you. So she she played an important role in your life, too. Yeah, for sure. She was. And, and you know, that house that you see in the dock, that's where my whole family grew up. And and every one of my cousins, every sibling that, that you know, is in my family lived in that house at some point. And that's the house that, you know, I, I, I grew up in. I, and that's the grapefruit tree was in that backyard. And, you know, obviously my mom, I mean, my mom had me at a young age and, you know, we were more like brother and sister, if that makes sense. She was more like a big sister to me. And, and my grandmother was more like my mother. She was the one that raised me. And, did everything basically. Yeah, John and I were talking a little bit before, and 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 he was talking about you know because I said, you know, I didn't know much about you know the Crest and Leo and until I watch a documentary, you know, I've heard things about it, but that's a tough area to grow up in. And what did you do to kind of was it sports? Was it baseball that kind of kept you out of you know getting in a lot of trouble? John said that you had some really good friends that would kind of guide you and keep you out of uh, getting into some serious trouble. Yeah, it was. I mean. You know, people read about Vallejo and, and ask me about Vallejo all the time and, and different things that you hear and or, you know, you watch. And um, but for me, it was safe. Like, that's where I grew up. You know, like the people that you read about are the people that I see at the at the liquor store that are like, you know, taking care of me and stuff. So, you know, I never once didn't feel safe in that neighborhood. So as far as staying out of trouble. Yeah, there were always different sports. You know, we played a lot of baseball. We played a lot of football in the street. Um, we play soccer, we play base, uh, basketball uh, pretty much uh, every day. So, yeah, there were, there were a lot of sports going on, you know, all the time in that neighborhood. And, and, you know, that was, you know, pretty much one of the ways I stayed out of trouble. You know, I always was 
watching examples too, because there were so many great athletes from Vallejo that ended up getting, getting in trouble, you know, losing scholarships, different things like that. So, you know, I didn't want to be one of those. I didn't, you know, my uh, inspiration, I just wanted to be the best from Vallejo. And it was so many great athletes and, and, you know, just trying to navigate through that. And that was one of the motivating reasons I wanted to stay out of trouble too. So you, you said basically you, you started drinking when you're around uh, 14 years old, 14, that's first, 14, that's mm-hmm. first time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, uh, you, did you know you had a problem then when you were younger? I mean, because you did so well for, I mean, starting out in the minor leagues and stuff like that. I mean, uh, uh, did, you know, did you know you had a problem at an early age? I knew I could drink more than everybody else at an early age, but I didn't think it was a problem. Um, I know Amber knew I had a problem in high school. So, it, you know, if you ask her, she knew it was a problem right away. For me, I didn't realize it was a problem until probably, until I was about 21 or 22 years old. And I'm like, man, this is like, I can do this every day. And, and you know, I, sometimes I would get drunk and p- pass out and then I would still want to get up in the morning and drink. So. I, you know, I figured it was it was a problem probably when I was in my early 20s for sure. Wow. So let's fast forward. I mean, you went through high school, you, you signed, you you know, you went into the minor leagues. And, and actually, you know, when I was Texas, we had some great battles with you guys in Cleveland because you had, you know, some great teams and we had some great teams in, in Texas. But, uh, you know, you, you started your, your minor league career and you 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 zoomed through the minor leagues and and. and you you made it and you know talk about the the feeling once you you know did you have some reflections of looking back as a kid and going man I'm in the big leagues now you know I mean uh you know because I did I mean when I was growing up you know I was a Yankee fan and when I finally you know got to the big leagues I was like oh my god you know this is like heaven yeah you work so hard to get there and now you're there you know you know what? The the my, I remember when I first got there, I was just always worried about going down. Like every day, I would I would come in and think that I, they was gonna send me down. So I know like what the, you mean. the first two years, I don't even remember. Like everything was just about not getting sent down, you know. Um, but for and like as far as wanting, you know, expecting to be in the big leagues, or you know, looking back and saying, you know, uh, wow, I'm in the big leagues. When I was 16, uh, I got a chance to watch Andrew Jones in the, in the World Series. He was, I think he was 18 years old at that World Series against the Yankees. And I remember thinking to myself, I was like, man, I want to be a teenager in the big leagues. So by the time, I, when I got to the big leagues, it was 20 years old. I was like, man, I'm late. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm thinking I'm behind the eight ball, you know, I'm 20 years old. But I, I probably shouldn't even, I, I should have been in AAA that year for sure. I don't think I've written more words about any athlete in my career than I've written about UCC. But uh, <laughs> one of those stories I did, I had an experience that I've only had with one other athlete where every single person you called where you're making these just, this guy's never going to call me back. Every single person's like, oh man, I'll make time to talk about CC. Oh man, I'll make time to talk about CC. <laughs> and and two guys in particular were Charlie Manuel and Mark Shapiro. And, and they both talked about that last year when you came up from mm-hmm. double A and the bet that they were making on you. And, and you know, Shapiro, obviously, he's a big supporter of yours and he took care of you in a lot of ways, but he wanted more time for you to develop. And Charlie Manuel was there saying like, no, this guy's ready. I want him. And Shapiro literally said to him, he's like, it's on you then. If he's not ready, it's on you. And that was a bet that a guy made on you. And, you know, that's kind of like a current that kind of rides through your whole career is that obviously – the millions of things that you did right to have 250 plus wins and 3000 plus strikeouts in the big leagues. But there's also just these stories about, you know, people recognizing something in you and making that bet on you a lot of the time. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, and that's pretty much my whole life. And you know that story. I mean, from Coach Hobbs to everybody, you know, but recognizing what I didn't see and even my dad, you know, telling me I pitched for the Yankees. But, um, yeah, I remember that that January of 2000. I, well, first, go, going back, that September, I was in Olympics. I was in Australia in 2000 Olympics. I'm getting ready to pitch in the Olympics. I get a call from John Hart. He's like, hey, you know, we got a couple double headers. We may have a chance to make the playoffs. We're going to have you come back and, you know, maybe pitch for us. So I fly from uh, Sydney, Australia to L.A., uh, spend a night in L.A., then I fly to Yankee Stadium. Um, the Yankees were playing uh, the Indians. Well, that was the day Bartolo threw a one-hitter. Luis Piloni got the base hit up the middle. I'm in the, I'm in the clubhouse sleep. Everybody, all the veterans are coming up and like, what are you doing your first day in the big leagues? You sleep on the couch, but bro, I just got back from all the way across the world. But um, we go into that offseason and Charlie tells me, he say, if you go into the offseason um, and you work hard and you ready and you come in ready in January, I promise you, um, you have a good spring training. I promise you, you'll make the team. And, and I took his word. So I went, worked my, worked my tail off, came in in January. They had this thing called winter development where all the prospects would come to uh, Cleveland in January. I was throwing good bullpens. And Charlie was like, if you, if you take carry this over to spring training, I'll fight for you. And he kept his word. And, and you know, like you said, Mark uh, was a huge supporter of me and did take care of me and still takes care of me to this day um, in a lot of ways. So uh, I think he just didn't want me to fail. You know, and but but I think if had they sent me to AAA after Charlie telling me, um, you know, that if I pitched good and if I worked hard that I would make the team and I and I did all those things and they still would have sent me to AAA, it would have sent me back a couple years. So I'm glad that, you know, Charlie fought for me and Mark listened to him and you know, the rest is kind of, you know, I guess the rest is kind of history, if that makes sense. But I'm telling you, Bucky, I mean, every single person, you call these people and they're like, oh man, God, it's busy day, trade deadline, whatever. But yeah, let's talk about CC. What, what do you got? And, and, and I said, <laughs> there's only two players I ever had that with. The other player I had that with was Carlos Beltran, who you can stop anyone in the street. <laughs> you know, you can go into a restaurant and see a Hall of Fame baseball player and shake their hand and say, do you have five minutes to talk about Carlos Beltran? And the answer is, oh yeah, let's be, I'll talk about Carlos. Same thing with CC. You stop anyone want to talk about CC, they'll be like, oh yeah, I'll make time to talk about CC. 2001 you make your first major league start got to be a thrill right yeah it was a super thrill and and even you know I mean I didn't even I could I didn't sleep at all the night before I remember getting on the mound like doing my warm-up pitches like man I probably should have took like slept a couple hours I was just so uh amped and nervous and all of those things but you know the one thing that I remember from from that start is just realizing that I was facing Cal Ripken you know he was the guy that I you know been watching my whole life and Mm -hmm. it's Cal Ripken and now he's standing in the box and like this is like where you've been working your whole life to be and that's like kind of those that moment that you were asking before and you know Cal Ripken standing in the box and the next thing y'all know he hits a double down the line I'm like okay it's a real baseball game like let me let me let me lock it in yeah these guys these guys are pretty good up here (laughs) yeah I tell you what I I you know people don't understand you know the excitement you know when when you're in the big leagues and you know you're you're facing Cal Ripken and I remember one of my first major league starts you know in uh, we're playing Baltimore and Brooks Robinson hits a double off the wall and I get the ball back in and I'm going to throw it back to the pitcher and he turns around and he goes, hey kid, how you doing? I mean, people don't understand those little moments are just so spectacular. They are. And, and, and you know, because those are those are the, the people that we grow up watching and, you know, idolizing. And, you know, I remember my very first uh, spring training, going back to that spring training, we're talking about uh, me making a team, I get a chance to face Ken Griffey Jr., 
and I'm so nervous. He's in Cincinnati. I'm so nervous. I'm a big King Griffey Jr. fan. Hit like him my whole life. And he gets in the box, and I'm just like, you know, I can't you know, get on the phone after this game and tell my buddies that King Griffey Jr. took me deep. So I'm going to just throw <laughs> these balls hard as I can right down the middle. That was my plan. And I threw the first one, like, way outside. So I'm like, okay, I got to, like, set my sights, you know, a little – a little more towards the plate, and I let one go and hit him right in the middle of his back. Oh. And I, I wanted to, like, run to the plate and, like, give him a hug. Like, oh, I didn't mean to do that. Like, <laughs> I'm so sorry. But you know what? You know what, though? That set me up for the rest of my career. He hated facing me after that for the rest of my career. So, you know, that 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 little fastball in the back helped me out with, uh, with getting him out for the rest of my career. You got to send a little message here and there, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that became your reputation later on, though, uh, as as a guy who uh, necessarily felt bad about, you know, throwing that ball that might have got somewhere or something like that. You got you got traded, uh, you know, to Milwaukee. And and I remember watching you in those playoff games and, you know, and you were talking about the other day coming back on three days rest and, you know, over and over and over over and over over again. again, you know, and I'm I'm thinking to myself. What are these guys today thinking when they can't go like three innings or four innings in a playoff? <laughs> and you're and you're pitching on three days rest over and over again. Yeah, it was just fun, man. I mean, I was locked in. Um, you know, and sometimes when you go to a new league as a pitcher, you know, those guys haven't seen you, and you know, you have the advantage. So it was really just me having the advantage over that league because they had never seen me, and 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 me just being in the in the right spot of my career and being locked in. Obviously, having Jason Kendall back there, veteran catcher, you know, I was able to just follow his lead. The team was super fun. You know, Mike Cameron was basically the leader of the team. Had a bunch of young players, a young Ryan Braun, Prince Fielder. Um, you know, Craig Council was on that squad. We traded for Ray Durham, Ricky Weeks. I mean, the the list just goes on and on. I mean, literally my best friend in the world, Dave Risky, was in the bullpen. So it was one of those things where that was one of the funnest summers I've ever had. You know, as a kid, as an adult, anything playing baseball. I remember how electric those crowds were in Milwaukee. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they, they, I mean they had the slow wave going. They, I mean, it was it was it was going crazy in Milwaukee that summer. And you know, Sheeter was hurt; his shoulder was messed up, and um, you know, he needed a couple extra, you know, a couple of weeks to get ready. You know, maybe for the playoffs. And I was like, man, I'm healthy. Let's do it. And you know, I got into a good routine where I would pitch, take a day off, play catch play catch and then pitch. And and it was just one of those things where, you know, the days that I was throwing on three days just rest just felt like a bullpen day. I didn't have to go out and try to overthrow my, you know, two-seamer was moving. Uh, Mike Mattis had just taught me a two-seamer when I first got to Milwaukee, helped me getting some ground balls, you know, pitching deeper into the game. So that's how I got a bunch of those complete games. And, uh, you know, it was it was easy just kind of nav- navigating those games, to be honest. I love those stories about that two-seamer coming up. And, I mean, again, a Charlie Emanuel thing, talking to me about – Oh, sweet. You know, we're facing CeCe. I know this guy well. I know everything about him, guys. And suddenly you're out there throwing this two-seam rap at them. And he's just like throwing his hands in the air. He's like, I have no idea what this is. <laughs> yeah, as soon as I get to Milwaukee first bullpen, uh, Mike Maddox is like, hey, I think, you know, we should try to throw a two-seam. I think it'll help you out. I think you get some grown balls, uh, especially over here in the National League. You know, get some easy innings. So I was like, all right, cool. We start throwing the two-seamer. Um, and, and for me, anytime I, like if I'm starting a new pitch, anytime I see a move, a little bit in the bullpen, I'm like, all right, I'm taking this right into the game. So we, I, I, I throw it, it moved, and I'm like, all right, this is good. Like, this is going to work. The first hitter I face is Ty Wigginson. Got a runner on first base. I'm like, all right, I'm about to get this ground ball. I throw Ty Wigginson a two-seamer. I think it was like 94 miles an hour. 
and he hit it off the scoreboard, Milwaukee. <laughs> like an absolute laser. It felt like a shotgun went off in there. And I'm like, well, well, maybe yeah. I need to like, you know, set my sights a little lower or something. So, but that always happens with me with a new pitch. Yeah, you look at you look in the dugout at Maddox and goes, that really works. <laughs> <laughs> he was he was looking at me doing like this, and I was like, yeah, I mean, yeah. that was it. <laughs> yeah. Like like how how would you hold that one? Four hundred some feet. <laughs> you know, you mentioned on that on that Milwaukee team. In addition to just you know the great run you guys went on, I mean, there's so many great African American players on that team. Looking mm-hmm. back at it, and obviously, you know, I know how meaningful it is to you your place among the pantheon of African American pitchers. And certainly, you see it in the documentary a lot too. You know, the guys around you, the Chris Youngs, the Adam Jones, and everything like that. You know, I I I've found it incredibly gratifying and interesting and special in this last year where there's just been so much trouble and, and, and so much discomfort around the world and around the country and everything like that, you know, the work that you guys have been doing with the Players Alliance and, and the things that you did on your podcast, R2C2, you know, when you put together a roundtable of a lot of, a lot of your buddies around the league. How do you feel as we reach the end of 2020? What do you think were some of the things that came out of what was a very difficult summer in a lot of ways? What, what, what do you think might be some things that you notice that you didn't see before? I think just these conversations, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I think just everybody around the country having these conversations, having tough conversations. I think every company hired a, a diversity group, you know, where they're trying to figure out how they can, how they can, you know, be better in, in that field. So I think that's the biggest thing is that, that everybody just wanted, I mean, I think from the African, African-American community that we just wanted to be recognized and, and hear our voices. And I think that's definitely been heard. And, you know, obviously for us in the baseball world, coming up with the Players Alliance and, and what we've been able to do in this short amount of time, I'm just super, super excited that we're all connected now. As a baseball community, the Black players, we do a lot in our community. I mean, as baseball players, period, you know, in general, every ethnicity, we all do a lot. So to be able to have us all connected now and, you know, being up, we put putting on this tour right now, we'll pull up neighbor 33 city t- uh, stop, 20 big league cities. Um, you know, it's been a lot of fun. We've, we've had support from, from anywhere from, you know, Dylan Batantis to TJ McFarland to, you know, Kyle Schwarber's coming out to Cincinnati. So, um, it's been a lot of fun to, to be able to be a part of that in, in this second half of my life and in, in my retirement. And, um, you know, hopefully we can just keep it going and keep doing great things in the community and all communities. Well, Bucky, this is one of the most special things that I, I, I have found about CC. And really, I, when I talk about CC, I hope it's I hope I'm not offending anyone. I'm talking about CeCe and Amber and, and really the four oh, kids. Yeah, so I'm talking no, about the family. Yeah, no. um, you can't talk about me without talking about my wife. No, I, never, I, I would never try it. Um, <laughs> but look, you you have, you know, all the money on the planet, whatever you want to do. You could write checks for, you know, a, a, a full day straight, spend her, and, and you would do a lot of good in the world. And what you guys do, though, is make time and showing your face is such a big part of what you do. It's not just about writing the check. It's about saying, you know, I'm committed to this and this is meaningful to me and I'm going to, you know, go there and I'm going to do this and I'm going to be out there. I'm going to ride up there with that truck distributing the stuff myself. And and that's always been a special thing, but not just that you do it, but that you bring the kids along to do it too. And you make them see the stuff that, you know, is important to do from your, you know, platform in the world. Yeah, for sure. And and I, but I think that just comes of how, I feel like I got charitable or I, you know, I became a philanthropist is because I met Dave Stewart. I had a chance to physically literally shake his hand in my neighborhood, in my boys and girls club. And that literally changed my life. So 
for me to be able to show up in Coney Island in the Bronx, uh, in Brooklyn, or show up in the Bronx, um, or you know, go in Vallejo and and be around in every hood, like that that mean that means more to me than the writing a check. It's showing up and showing these kids that I'm actually here and I'm physically you can touch me. So that was that was the biggest thing. Watching Dave Stewart walk into my Boys and Girls Club literally changed my life. Like that was I was like that's the guy I want to be in every sense of standing on the mound to what he does in the community. So, you know, if I can do that for one kid, you know, when I show up at Kip's Bay in the Boys and Girls Club and it's one kid that gets inspired by me, by me being out there and he turns into what I turned into and has his own organization, then it's all worth it. But you know, the thing is, it's such a line because, you know, you talk about Dave Stewart. I'm sure Dave Stewart talks about someone else, but I can tell you- Bob Gibson. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I can tell you last year I was in Fresno with Judge, Aaron Judge. Mm -hmm. And watching him do an event for kids, and he's talking about that he learned it from you. So there's just this line, this generational line that continues because guys reach out to each other, guys show each other, you know, what it means to touch somebody when they're young and and, and to show them the impact you can have on a life. So Dave Stewart got you in what you were, you were what, eight, nine years old, something like that. I was nine years yeah. old, but that's that's just great. Like, I mean, Bucky, you know that too, the, the baseball community, like being able to have big brothers like, you know, Ellis Burks and uh, Matt Lawton and Ricky Gutierrez and, you know, Dave Berba, Chuck Philly, like these guys basically raised me and right. show you how to be a professional. Uh, you know, I was so young when I got to the big leagues and I mean, I could have been, you know, obviously I was drinking a lot at that time. I could have, I could have really effed up my career at, at, at that time. And, you know, some of the things that I was doing off the field and, you know, those guys would pull me aside and be like, Hey, maybe you should do a lot. You know what I'm saying? So, to, to be able to, to learn and navigate uh, on and off the field is something that the baseball community, you know, we, we do, we teach each other really well. And, and, and it's something that, you know, we always pass down from the charitable stuff to on and off the field. Absolutely. Dave, Dave Stewart, I played with Dave Stewart in Texas uh, when he got traded over from the Dodgers in uh, 83 when we were uh, fighting for the pennant, you know, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, class guy, but you're, you're so, you're so right. You know, like when I came up, uh, in 1973, Chuck Brinkman was my roommate and, you know, the guys that you mentioned, you know, the guys that, that I played with, you know, they, they steered you in the right direction to teach you how to be a professional, you know, and, you know, back then, you know, you weren't allowed to go in the bar with the manager, you know, so he, they taught you the fundamentals of, of like trying to carry yourself as a major league player, and to not get in trouble. And, and I always talk about those guys, you know, because they, they, they guided me in the right direction, you know, mm-hmm. and I played with guys like Dick Allen, you know, Dick was, you know, he just passed away, you know, mm-hmm. but uh, what a, you know, he gets a bad rap, but what a great guy. He was one of my all time favorites as a player, you know, and he would say thing to you as a, you know, when you're playing a game, you know, you'd say, Hey Dick, you know, what about this? You know, and he would, he would always give you, you know, a, a, a really good answer to make you think, think like, hmm, you know, that's why he's so good at running the bases or, you know, that's why he's so good in this situation. So you're absolutely right. You know, those guys are, are so important. And um, do you think that the guys today do the same thing with, with the guys coming up? Yeah, I think so. Uh, the, the thing about the game today is that there's just not a lot of, like what you just explained of, of how to be a big leaguer is what I got. But there's just not a lot of like our generation anymore. You know what I'm saying? So yes, like I, I was basically I'm trying to think of who else was Pujols. Probably you know he he came up in the early 2000s. But you know it, 
the big leagues that that I'm not gonna say the big leagues that I played in is the same that you played in, but it was the same principles, if that makes sure. sense. Sure. The same right. rules. Right. And now the rules ain't the same. <laughs> the same. Those same rules don't apply. Whether it's good or bad for the game, it is what it is. It's not the same big league. So if you walk into a clubhouse right now, it, it's a lot different than than what you would expect it to be. They don't even let us go in there now. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> so there is, to be honest, there is really nothing to pass down other than, you know, the stuff off the field is, you know, being charitable and, you know, learning how to carry yourself and things like that. But, you know, as far as some of the stuff that we learned of, of how to carry, how to be a big leaguer and how to play the game, it's a lot, it's a lot, lot different now. Well, that's, that's why I think your documentary, you know, like I said, you know, I got tears in my eyes and I was fascinated with it because your documentary is going to help a lot of people, you know, it's going to help a lot of people, you know, uh, to get help when they're, when they're in trouble because you're, you're so, uh, outspoken and, and honest ab- about your dealings, you know, with, with your addiction and, and how you, you know, it tormented you and, but you still managed with a great family and, and a great wife you made it through it. And, and that's, that's the important thing. And, uh, that's why I I think, you know, people, they got to watch this thing because I, I, like I, like I said, I was just mesmerized with it because, you know, going through your career and then going to New York and, you know, John and I were talking, you know, I was watching that game, the last pitch you threw, you know, you could honestly say I, to any kid that you see growing up, you can say, I gave it my all to my last pitch, and and that means something, you know. And I was just, you know, I was, I was always admired your career. You know, they called you the bear, they called you a warrior, <laughs> and you know, I'd love to see you pitch because you pitch with intensity. And not only that, you changed your pitching style. You know, you were a power pitcher, and then you know, you lost some velocity. You became a better pitcher. I thought. Yeah, thank you. Being here in New York is the reason why I was able to extend my career and, you know, get that second half. And, and you know, like John was saying earlier, being passed down from the, the Billy Cutter, Billy Connors Cutter, you know, and, and learning mm-hmm. it from Mo and Andy, you know. So to be able to, you know, now pass it down, to, you know, Jordan Montgomery's throwing the same cutter, you know what I mean? Right. I always ask guys now because I, you know, they don't, we're not, I'm not around many players anymore because I don't get opportunity to go into clubhouse and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But do the young players talk to you guys, you know, uh, uh, about certain situations? Do they pick your brain? Because, you know, when, when I, like I said, when I was coming up, you know, I ask everybody about everything, you know, what do you think about this? You know, even Yogi, you know, you know, People said, you know, well, Yogi. Well, Yogi was a pretty smart baseball guy. You had to get him to talk. I talked to Yogi about pitching all yeah. the time. And Yogi would always come to me in spring training and be and ask me about, you know, certain guys and how they set up or, or you know, tell me to tell certain guys to set up a different way to get me a strike. So, yeah, I mean, I always talked. I was, me personally, I always asked everybody everything, whether mm-hmm. it was Reggie to A-Rod to, you know, Yogi, whoever. Um, but, yeah. The young guys talk for sure. I mean, a, a, especially a lot of the pitchers, you know, when, when Andy's in there, you know, Andy's such a great teacher and he can explain things so well, you know, he can break them down to you so easy. So a lot of, a lot of guys gravitate towards him. You know, me, I'm, I'm better at being able to like teach you like about mentality, about, you know, going out there and how you should feel, what you should feel like, you know, trying to navigate through the game. But you're not going to feel good 100% all the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You, know, you exactly. have to learn to get through that as a uh, as a pitcher, right? Yeah, and I think that was one of the biggest things I, I, I feel like I left my impression on 
you know, the Severinos, the Montgomerys. Tanaka's tough as hell. I don't have to leave no impression on him. I mean, the guy's been pitching with a with a torn UCL for seven years. But I think that's the biggest thing is for these young guys to know that, you know, I mean, they saw me going out there beat up. I mean, even if, you know, the, the biggest thing I watched in that doc is if you see some of that footage, like from old timers day and, and all those different things, I had this tape on my neck uh, that was like basically holding me together. Like we knew my shoulder was, you know, we were, we were piecing it together. And, and that's the biggest thing. Like, I, I mean, I was so busted up. My knee was messed up. My shoulder was messed up. And I think those guys just seeing me still try to go out there every fifth day. It's something that, you know, I'm proud that I can leave with them. But that's always one of my favorite things, too, is I don't need to tell either one of you this. I mean, you lived it. I didn't. But it's like you're CC Sabathia from Vallejo. And, and if you watched a game and caught you in the dugout, you're always talking to, you know, Jordan Montgomery from South Carolina or you're chatting mm-hmm. up uh, Masir Tanaka or Luis Severino. And there's just this idea that your upbringing is and always couldn't have been any more different. I'm sure that, you know, you were different people in so many ways, but just, you know, you get into that dugout and you're Yankees at that point, you're baseball players. Yeah. And I mean, and even like the connection of, you know, me and Monty, Monty's my little brother because we're left-handed pitchers. You're left-handed. Exactly. And, you're just and, two left-handed and, pitchers. Exactly. And Andy's the big brother. He's the godfather because he is the guy, you know what I'm saying? So yeah, I mean like, you know, me and Andy, we are, couldn't be completely, uh, you know, grew up in completely opposite, you know, ends of the spectrum as far as, you know, growing up and, you know, he grew up in Texas. I grew up in California and in the city, different things. But we're exactly the same. We have so much in common and we think so much alike. And, you know, once I realized that and, you know, as soon as I got here and just saw him on game days and, you know, everybody thinks he's so intense when he's out there and, you know, he's locked in. But if you can just see him in the dugout during the game, man, it's hilarious. Um, (laughs) And once I figured that out, I'm like, man, like if he's like that, then I can be like that. I used to always be nervous. I used to always be nervous to be nervous, if that makes sense. Like I didn't want people to think that I was nervous. So that was a part of my walking around the clubhouse, talking to everybody and, and, and being social. That was part of my nervous ne- mechanism for, you know, game day. So I didn't want people to think I was nervous. But once I saw Andy and how nervous he would be on game days or even during the game, then I, it was fine for me to be nervous, too. You know, <laughs> you, you guys talked a lot about that last pitch. And, and, you know, Bucky, you alluded to the talk that we were having before. It's my saddest experience in a baseball stadium. Just because I remember just my heart just sinking to the ground as I watched, you know, and yet, and one thing that I think comes through a lot, and, and that definitely came through the next day in your press conference, but that also really comes through in the documentary, is that I, I think I can name on one hand the guys whose careers ended exactly the right way. You know, obviously one of them is Derek Jeter, in a sense. And I don't, he would have obviously preferred a World Series parade, World but Series. like, you know, th- th- that was pretty amazing how that happened. But, you know, you got to walk off the mound that last time with an entire stadium showing you how much they loved you. And one thing that I saw in the documentary that I guess I hadn't noticed before is that when you went down to the tunnel, before you went through the door, you just sat down on the steps there. Was that oh, you no. collecting yourself? No, I was in so much pain. Um, if you watch, if you watch the doc, Stevie's holding me up. Mm-hmm. Like I, I wouldn't like I was limping and everybody thought it was my knee. I was in so much pain. Like I couldn't even swing my arm um, to walk. So like, when I'm watching it, yeah, I mean, it's, it's cool. And, like, I, I've, I've cried on that part when I watched it the first time, you know, hearing the crowd and, you know, being able to walk off. And in that moment, I heard the crowd, too. But he's literally – what I've what seen from that from that is, like, I get a chance to walk off and, and you know, and, and this is going to be my last time at the stadium. But he's literally carrying me off. He's, crad- he's cradling your arm for sure. Cradling, he's yeah, carrying my arm, but he's got my belt. 
where if he lets go of my belt, I would have I would have fell right there. So as soon as he let me go is where I sat down. You know what I'm saying? So that I mean it was and I sat there for a while. Uh and I mean I, it was it was it was hurting that much. I mean it was all the way shooting up all the way like past my ear. I just I knew like I, I I tore everything. I knew it was I knew that was it. But again, I mean you go back to there are plenty of players who played their last game in twenty twenty and they left the field to fake crowd noise that yeah, wasn't yeah. real you know yeah. and, and it's just i can't even imagine the difference of the experience. again no one wants you to run off the mat or walk off the mound no that pain. was the only way that was the only way i was going to retire because i would have got you know halfway through the offseason and been like man i probably could have pitched <laughs> you know out of the bullpen because i was feeling pretty good out of the bullpen you come out get a couple of outs you know what i'm saying get a lefty out navigate get the travel around um, it was sounding pretty good. So that was that, that was literally the best way for it to end for me. That was, the, that was the best way. Looking back on your career, and I always ask guys this, you know, you had such a tremendous career, six-time All-Star, you know, Cy Young, but that one World Series championship, did you ever think that, you know, coming over in 2009 you were going to win, but then you wouldn't win another one? No, I didn't. Um, I mean, the teams that you had? I mean, Yeah. In 2010, 2010 we should have won two. 2011, we probably should have won, too. Um, but, no, I thought, you know, after 09, I, I mean, I thought this was going to be every year. Like, I'm like, oh, we're about to have a parade. I thought it was going to go on, like, one of those those runs that they went on yeah, in, the, in the 90s, you know? Out of, yeah. Uh, or like you guys did in the 70s. I thought we had we had that type of team set up, especially when we traded for Curtis. You know, we had we got traded for Curtis Granderson, so I'm like, oh, man, we're set up, and, you know, it just didn't work out. Right. For whatever right. reason, those those don't haunt me as much because I did win one with the Yankees. Mm-hmm. But the one that that haunts me the most is 2007 with the Indians. You know, if 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 I pitched the way I pitched down the stretch in 08 in Milwaukee in that playoffs in 07 with the Indians, we win the World Series because we were a better team. Mm-hmm. You know, we were better than Boston. We beat the Yankees in the first round. We were better than Boston, and we would we were better than the Rockies too. It was just they needed an ace, and I wasn't ready to I wasn't ready to be that guy yet. Yeah, I was I was the same way. I got traded over to New York. We won 77, 78. I'm going, wow, man. You know, we could get on one of these runs like the Yankees did back in the 60s, you know. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden, you know, 79, you know, we lose Thurman. 80, we win 103, get swept. 81, we go to the World Series. I get hurt. I don't get to play in the World Series. And then after that, never seen the, the light of another one. So those things are special and people don't understand. You know, and you, you talk about it, you know, uh, in your documentary is the grind that you go through and the pressure, you know? So, um, you know, I, I wasn't a big drinker, but I used to, you know, have some drinks to kind of just calm you down, you know, Mm -hmm. at at the end of the game. And, and I think that's, you know, where your vulnerability is, you know, because I don't really think people understand the pressure you're going through when you're fighting for a pennant down the stretch in, in, in September. You know, I mean, pressure. no, I mean, just a, just a, just the pressure of playing baseball, period, because you're gonna right. fail so much, you know, and, right. and 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 that's what somebody asked me. Somebody asked me this yesterday. I was doing an interview, and and they were saying, um, asked me about did I feel more stressed in New York than I did in Milwaukee or Cleveland, and I told them I felt the same as I did starting an All Star game when I was ten years old as I did when I started opening day or or on, on a Thursday night and. Yankee Stadium. It's, it was always the same nervous. It was always the same feeling. Because it, it's internal. It's not external. It's internal. So you yeah. put you put the, the pressure all on yourself. I want to ask you a question, though, uh, Buck, about playing on, on those teams because the, the, the team that we won the World Series with, 09, we were super close. 
We all had right. fun together. We, I mean, we obviously know some of those teams you played on in the 70s had a little bit of drama. How was that like having the drama and still being able to win? What was that like? Well, the drama, the one thing that I always say, you know, those teams that I played on, I played some great teams. Off the field, there might have been drama between Billy and Reggie and George and Munson and those guys. But between the lines, buddy, look out. They, you better come to play. And I always say, you know, the teams that I played on, really the manager didn't have to say much to you. Because if you walk off the field and you don't do something, you're not hustling or you miss a play or something like that. You had Thurman Munson, Nettles, you know, Pinella, somebody was going to say something to you, you know, and, and I always say, you know, talking to the old guys at old timers day, you know, when they, when they were in your locker, you know, um, I would ask them, you know, about the same thing. And they would say, when we got a guy over here and he wasn't, you know, getting in at nighttime and doing things, we'd always say, Hey, you're messing with our money now because, you know, when we played to win the World Series meant a lot of extra money at the end of the year, you know. Mm -hmm. So, you know, those guys, you know, and but we were close. We had a lot of fun. We had some characters, you know. You've been around Rivers and Oh, yeah, of course. And, you know, and, and, and Munson. But if you messed up, don't get on the bus. That was where it was really fun. When you, when you got on the bus, if you screwed up, they were going to bury you on the bus in a, in a good way. But, you know, like you said, that's what it was all about. You know, that camaraderie of, you know, playing together, screwing up and having somebody saying something to you, you know, to keep you, to keep you in the game, you know. But, yeah, we were close just like you guys were. No, that's awesome. Speaking about Alzheimer's Day, I mean, you know, when when do we start uh, recruiting CC for? Uh... <laughs> Man, I want to I, I want to play first base and hit though. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, well, I tell you what, you know, as you, uh, I'm getting older. You know, I'm 69 now, and and I play in these old timers games. You know, I, I always want to face Gidry because he's going to let us hit it. You know, I don't want to face <laughs> Jeff Nelson. I don't want to face Sterling Hitchcock or Mariana or them because they still throw in, in the upper 80s and 90s. And yeah, I Jeff Nelson still got a nasty slider. He's still trying yeah. to get out. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, and we're staying at a shortstop. I remember about 10 years ago when Bernie first came to, you know, Brian Doyle and I were staying at shortstop and these guys are hitting like rockets. And I said, I ain't getting in front of that in the game, man. I can't, I'm not getting in front of that. <laughs> but but it, it's, it's a lot of fun, you know, the, the old timers games. Well, well, what do you say? Is uh, Lil C going to teach you how to play some first base there? What's, what's the plan? Oh, uh, no, I'm teaching Lil C how to play first base. <laughs> is that what he is, a first baseman? Yeah, he plays first. Now he's starting to play a little bit of outfield. Now he's getting some speed. and uh, But he plays first. He plays the corner. He can play third, too. Um but he primarily plays first base, right? Now, do, you, do you get nervous more when he's playing than when you played? Because I sure when I was watching my son at Florida, I used to get like ridiculously nervous. Oh man, I get so nervous. I get so nervous, and and and, and it's more. It's not even like the result. I just want him to have a good approach and a good at bat. You know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? Oh um, yeah. So it, it's just more about that. But yeah, I mean, it's 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 a lot more nerve wracking. I understand what my mom needs to go through now. Oh, I couldn't yeah. imagine. I couldn't imagine if he was a pitcher. Like I, I would. I would not want that. Uh huh. What about what about the golf game? What are you shooting these days? I did. I, I did not expect this. But I, I did not expect CC Sabathia to be on the golf course all the time. But right. Every 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 day I got a chance to golf this uh, this summer. I did. Uh, the last time I went out, I brought. I, I, uh, I shot a ninety four. Okay. Okay. So uh, I started off the summer. I was shooting probably like one ten, one oh, you know, one one oh five to one ten. And then the last time I went out was probably like two weeks ago now. Uh, I shot a 94. So you got an auto autobiography coming out in, in the middle of next summer, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, all of last year while we were shooting the doc at the same time, 
um, Chris Smith was following me around um, and we were going on the road and we would do just these long interviews, kind of like this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we just sit down and chat and, you know, talk about stuff all the way back from when I was a kid all the way up until, you know, that last year. So we got basically everything, you know, everything that the doc doesn't cover, it goes in depth into the book. So I'm very excited about, you know, the book coming out too. Um, I did, I didn't want to do the book at first because, uh, you know, I just like, I'm, I'm so young, you know, people do books when, you know, they're at the end of their life, I feel like. And, but I just, it, again, I think I feel like it can help people you know, that are dealing with addiction. And, and that's the reason why I went into rehab in the first place. Well, here's, here's one thing that I'll say. In December of 18, so before your last year, Amber came into the stadium one day and we were talking with her and Ari Goldman, Hector photographer, and we were talking about mm-hmm. ways that we wanted to help document your last year. And one thing I brought up as just like a shot in the dark, I was like, yeah, maybe CC wants a book or something like that. And she told me, she's like, you know, we have Chris Smith from New York Magazine doing it. And I was just like, Yep, that's the right choice. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's the right guy for it. <laughs> as much as I would have loved to have like, found a way into that project, I'm like, nope, they found the right. Chris Smith's great, and I can't wait to read the book, and I can't wait to see. Uh, I, I know I know he took good care of your story. I'll, I'll put it that way. And he was persistent because he came to me early 18, and I was like, man, this is like, I'm like, I'm, for me, it's just like my, my life is normal. You know what I mean? Like, this is what everybody goes through. I just feel like I'm a normal guy. And he was like, that's what I like about it is that you're a normal guy. So I think it'll help people. So he, you know, he was on me all of 18. And, you know, I finally was like, you know, Jason Zillow was finally like, man, this is something that you probably should do. And, you know, I'm glad I did it though. So, you know, even if, you know, my kids will have this years from now, you know, when I'm gone, they can, you know, know what I was thinking and, and know what I was thinking about them and, and what I went through. Certainly your kids, but also just kids all over Vallejo, kids all over, you know, all these places where you came out. Of, I, look, I've seen the work that the Pitch In Foundation does in terms of, you know, lifting up kids and things like that. And just, you know, you throw this book in that those backpacks and teach a story of a kid who grew up a lot like them and things like that. That's not, you, you know what that does for kids. Yeah, yeah, thank you. For sure, I'm excited. Well, you got some great, the the, the title, I mean, Till the End, Under mm-hmm. the Grapefruit Tree. I mean, those those are just, I mean, wow. I mean, th- those are great titles. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, and, and Till the End is just basically what we were talking about. You know, I, I threw until till the end, until I couldn't anymore. And, and, you know, it's basically, you know, I feel like the same way. You know, I drank until I couldn't anymore. And, you know, I was got fed up with it and, you know, my family was fed up with it. And, you know, not until I was, you know, brave enough to go make that change that my life get better. So, well, um, I, I'm sure, you know, that, that, that struggle that you went through and, and, and to come out, you know, right when you guys are going to go into the playoff, I mean, that had to be like, wow. I mean, just watching that, I was like, man, you had, you had some courage, man. But I'm telling you, that was really like one of the toughest like moments, even when I think about that, like I still, you know, like get teared up or like get sad. Like I'm sitting in, I'm sitting in basically a hospital, you know, gown, almost like a mental hospital. If you, could, if that, if that makes sense at the part when you first check in, um, I got no, I got Nikes on with no shoestrings in them. Like the tongue is flipped out. My sweats are in backwards. And I have like a, basically like a, like a, like a hospital gown on. And I'm sitting here with like strangers and I'm watching Masahiro Tanaka warm up for the wildcard game. Like it was just the most, it was almost like it wasn't me. Like it was the weirdest thing. And then, you know, I had to just come to terms with like, this is where you got yourself. Like, how are you going to get yourself out of the situation? 
Like I had to recognize like, are you going, is this going to be the rest of your life? You're going to be doing this for the rest of your life? This sad story or this could have been or this headline? Or are you going to turn it around and, and live the rest of your life like and, and happily, you know, happily ever after as you, as it could be with your four kids and your wife? Well, here's the thing. I, I don't want to pretend that it was easy or that it's all a happy story in the end and we can all smile and, and, and talk about as though this isn't a real story about someone's real life. But I will say this. I, I will never forget that day when we got the press release, we got your statement, and then we went down to the press conference and, you know, we have to put on our reporter's hats at this point and I'm sitting there probably a little farther back to me. And this is the playoffs. So you have everyone in town now. I mean, yeah. and I just remember, and I know that it wasn't as simple as they were making it out to be. But I remember first listening to Cashman and then listening to Girardi and just this message of support that was coming through there. And this message of there was never even a question that we would doubt or anything like that. It was just he's our part of our family and he needs help. I will tell you, I've never been I've never felt better about being part of the Yankees family than I did that day. I felt like lives were saved that day. Family was kept together for sure. It was it was it was special to see that response and that reaction and however people felt maybe behind the scenes or whatever if, if if there were different things they were saying elsewhere I know that what they were saying on that TV screen that day I, like I said I think lives were saved so I thought it was really special that was the reaction I got as soon as I walked into Joe, Joe's office I mean you've been in that Baltimore clubhouse like I went from the kitchen in there I was sitting at the table talking to Dylan and Chris Young and I literally got out walked out of there and walked straight into Joe's office. And he closed the door. Uh, it was me, him, and Chad, and Harky. And he called uh, Cashman, and they called me a ride right away. Um, and and it was uh, and Jason Zillow was in there, and 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 they just had my back one thousand percent. You know, from you know you know Jeter and you know and Andy and Mo and those guys trying to come up to the facility to Stevie coming up to see me. You know, just the whole Yankee family, Steinbrenner family, like they. They really rallied behind me, and, and that was the only reason I was able to, to keep my career going for sure. Well, I, my wife and I were in Arizona visiting our son, and we got to see your 3,000 strikeout. Uh, what, a, what an awesome night that was. And till the end, it's not over, baby. You know, you're uh, one of three African-American pitchers with mm -hmm. Ferguson Jenkins and Bob Gibson and, and yourself and 251 wins. I mean, uh, you know, the next step, it's not over, baby, because I think uh, Hall of Fame's the next. Hey, he's a Hall of Fame baseball player. Maybe could be a Hall of Fame podcaster. You know, we'll never know. That's right. Uh, yeah. Like, That's right. Hall I, of Fame I, hope, I hope those get me in the Hall of Fame. That, that would be great. I mean, uh, like you said, though, being the third African-American to have those numbers, uh, 3,000 strikeouts is just so crazy. It's almost like it wasn't me. Like, it's just so weird. I don't even know where they all came from. Like, I can't remember. <laughs> you know, like, I don't, I don't know. It's just, it's just a weird thing to have those numbers. Um but I hope one day to, to, to be in Cooperstown. I've never been there, so uh, hopefully that happens. You've never been to Cooperstown? I've never been there. No, I pitched oh. in that Hall of Fame game, but I've never been to the museum. Like, I was oh. so young. Oh, man. I, I get mesmerized every time I go in there. You know, I mean, just walking through and, you know, you got to get them to take you down below and see all the, you know, all the old jerseys and the bats and the gloves. You will believe the gloves these guys used to play with. I mean, Lou Gehrig's glove. Oh, my God. I don't even know how he caught the ball. That's why he caught the ball with two hands. But uh, yeah, you're you're a podcaster too, man. R two C two with uh, Ryan Rucco. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's been fun. We started the podcast in 2017, um, and you know, while I was still playing, and and like you know, and, and like like me and Andy, me and Rucco have a lot in common too. Mm -hmm. um, a lot, we have a lot of the same interests. We have you know a lot of the same, a lot of the shared music, TV shows that we like a lot. 
um, sports, we have a lot of the same opinions. So it's fun to be able to, um, you know, do the podcast with a buddy, you know, and, and uh, he makes it easy. I mean, Ruko's so good at what he does and, you know, he's, he's a host. He knows how to run a show. And I just, you know, throw my stuff in there, a couple cuss words and, you know, people seem to like it. And I'm a huge sports fan. So it makes, you know, it, it makes it more fun when I can, you know, talk about what I'm seeing, uh, you know, on, on, during the week. Well, I'm telling everybody they got to watch this HBO special. I mean, this documentary, because you are an inspiration to a lot of people, man. I'm telling you, you and your wife and your family and all the things that you've been through. And I can't, and what a beautiful family you have. I'm telling you. And, uh, you know, I wish you all the best in your retirement. You know, you know, sooner or later when we get out there on that old timers field, baby. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Throw me, throw me, throw me a lollipop now. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. You know, and uh, but but thank you so much for your time, CC man. I tell you, you're, you're the best, and uh, loved having you on, and 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 God bless you, and, and good luck with uh, with your uh, autobiography next summer. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. And thank you for everything that you do and, and you know, being a great Yankee. And, you know, you definitely inspired, inspired this next generation to do the right thing and, you know, go out there and, and try to win, you know, World Series and, and, you know, have their name like yours that, you know, be Bucky Dent. So that's what F everybody... Everybody's get a, get a middle to, initial. Get a middle <laughs> initial, sure. baby. Yeah, hey, John, thank you for everything that you do for me and in, in the, in the, uh, the Pitching Foundation. I know, you know, you and Amber are close and you do a lot of stuff for the foundation. So, you know, thank you a lot for everything that you've done, you know, since we've been in New York, John. Thank it's an you absolute so awesome. joy, man. I appreciate the time. Yeah, no thank you. And have a have a Merry Christmas. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll hopefully we'll see you in the spring. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Thanks a lot. Thanks for All coming right, see on. you guys. Wow. Yeah, that was fun. He's such a good dude. Oh, man. You know, just the things that he's gone through, the the honesty, you know, in, in the documentary. I mean, like I said, I got tears. My wife and I watched it, and it was like, wow, man, this guy, you know, had gone through so much. But, you know, he his dreams, you know, came true. And, uh, you know, like I said to him, you know, walking out there, and every athlete wants to give it their all to the last pitch or or whatever, and he did that. And he's got to be able to, you know, say, I, you know, I pitched till I couldn't throw anymore. He's just a guy who has always stood for the right things. And he does not have to be doing this right now. The fact of the matter is his career is over. He doesn't have to relive, you know, these darkest moments of his life right now. The only reason to do this is to help other people and to let people know that they're not alone, that they can be going through some really dark things and look what he was able to accomplish by getting help. And mm -hmm. it's so important that I think that people recognize what he's doing with that. He's not just telling a story. He could, he could have sold a documentary, I'm sure, and left out most of that stuff. He could have sold a memoir or autobiography and left out most of that stuff, but he's doing it because people need to hear it. People need to hear that they're not alone and it's a it's really a special thing and it's indicative of the way he's lived his entire life if you like like we he mentioned you know i've spent a lot of time with his pitch in foundation and it, it's just remarkable to see the impact he can have on people just by being himself and i mentioned this on the pod and it, it, it's true look i mean cc sabathia you saw him on the mound winning those 250 games and getting those 3,000 strikeouts and there's no question you know that that was something he was doing but as he mentioned, and as you could see, if you spend any time around him, everything that that guy accomplishes, he's the first one to note 
the impact that his grandma had, that his father had, that his mother had, and certainly right now that Amber, his wife, has. And it's just everyone likes the idea of getting to spend time around professional athletes. It's a fun thing to do. You know, it's it's cool to be able to tell stories like that. But the joy that I've gotten from seeing that family and seeing the way that they bond, the way that they laugh together, the way that they just love each other so much. It's been one of my favorite parts about working for the Yankees. That's well said, my man. I hope everyone will uh, check out the documentary Under the Grapefruit Tree. It's on HBO. If you're listening to this the day it comes out, it's tonight. Otherwise, I'm sure you could find it on demand or on HBO Max or anything like that. In the summer of 2021, he has the autobiography Till the End coming out that he wrote with Chris Smith. I know I'm definitely looking forward to that. And you should also just, you know, look at the stuff, the work that CeCe's doing with the Players Alliance and certainly his own pitch-in foundation, the great works that they do. You can obviously support them in helping to, you know, lift up young kids and, and, and to do for young kids what he knows that people did for him when he was coming up. But it's a He's a special dude, and I think that we spent about an hour get, giving you all a chance to hear that. Amen. So, Bucky, uh, you know, this is our last one, obviously, of 2020. And, you know, I don't I don't think anyone's going to really miss 2020, but I would say that certainly one of my favorite things about this year has been the Deep to Left with Bucky Dent podcast. I enjoyed uh, getting to do it with you this year and look forward to everything 2021 holds for us. Well, I'm looking forward to two, 2021 also, but 2020 uh, doing this with you and and Al, I mean, uh, we started off and we we got to talk and chat baseball with a lot of different people. And that's what's always fun is to be able to hear them talk about their careers and their, you know, um, what happened in baseball when they were growing up and what what drove them to be, you know, the, the special baseball players that they were. That was a lot of fun. And I had a great time with you also. And I'm looking forward to next year also. So we did our first episode in your previous home in your dining room and since then we have not seen each other in person but you know let's let's change that in 2020 let's all get our vaccines and let's change that but before we do everyone have a very very merry christmas if you celebrate have a happy new year and let's put this one in the past absolutely merry christmas everybody cheers and to all of you thanks for listening to another episode of deep to left with bucky dent before you go, I want to tell you more about the Yankees Magazine Podcast Network. If you liked hearing from Bucky today, you should also check out the Yankees Magazine Podcast, where we break down some of our written stories from each new magazine and, of course, talk Yankees baseball. If you're not subscribed, what are you waiting for? We're available wherever you listen to podcasts or at yankees.com slash podcast. Leave us a review. Leave us a rating. You can even send us your thoughts over email. Podcast at yankees.com. And for our Yankees Magazine subscribers, we're so grateful for your help in keeping our magazine going. If you're looking to renew your subscription or to start a new one, there's no better time than right now. We have incredible holiday offers available that include throw-ins like free tickets, commemorative magazines, you name it. You can even buy a package that includes the ability to participate in a segment on a future episode of the Yankees Magazine podcast. Call 800-GO-YANKS for details or visit yankees.com slash publications. Plus, if you'd like to see our content online, get a taste of it at yankees.com slash magazine. That's it. See you next time. Happy holidays. Happy New Year and go Yanks. Hi, this is Aaron Hicks. For more stories like this one, subscribe by visiting yankees.com slash publications or by calling 800-GO-YANKS.